Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to IAQ Radio for Friday, December 11th, 2015. This week we're going to have a flashback Friday. We're going back in the archives to May 17th, 2013 when our guest was H. Barney Burroughs. Barney is an author and past international president of ASHRAE. John, you gotta have faith, and I just listened to the show again, and it was a tremendous show, so we're happy to bring it back for the last, second to last show of 2015. We'll be back live next Friday at noon with more IAQ, Indoor Air Quality Radio. Uh, This week, we've got Barney Burroughs. Barney is an author, ASHRAE past international president, and a well-known indoor environmental quality consultant. He's a technical consultant in indoor environmental quality and a recognized expert in indoor air quality and air cleaning. He is the primary author of Burroughs Hansen Managing Indoor Air Quality, now in its fifth edition, which is also a reference for the ACAC, CIE, and CIEC exams. He is also the president and CEO of Building Wellness Consultancy, a consulting firm specializing in IAQ diagnostics, training, filtration, and related indoor air quality, building health, safety, and security issues. He's a prolific author of numerous papers and articles, a lecturer on IAQ, and frequently leads seminars on IAQ and related subjects. He's a past international president of ASHRAE, a fellow of ASHRAE, and he's attained the ASHRAE Distinguished Service and Exceptional Service Awards and was designated Distinguished Lecturer with ASHRAE's Education Program. He's also the current recipient of the ASHRAE Environmental Health Award, and we're really looking forward to having him on the show today. We have some music for Barney. Well, having dirty air filters isn't free. It'll slow you down and waste energy. So tell me, Dave. What's I gonna do? It'll cost you money. It'll cost you dough. You might as well take your cash and throw it out the window. Okay. I don't know how well you can make that out on a telephone, Barney, but it comes out great when the when the recording goes out. Do we have you on the line? Welcome and, and good to be with you. Great to have you. We uh, are looking forward to talking a little bit about indoor air quality, but I know your real area is filtration is a, a passion of yours, at least that's the impression I get from looking at your your background. But before we get started on that, let's let's get a little bit of a, a background for listeners who aren't familiar with you. Um, you were, you know, you've got a long career in the industry. You started out in um, DePaul and then took some grad courses at several other institutions, um, and then you were doing some work at Ohio University and Marietta College. What what ended up getting you interested in the filtration end of things and, and indoor air quality in general? Well, the truth of the matter is most of my early education was in life science areas, and um, I ended up spending a lot of time in the healthcare area uh, with uh, filtration sales and that sort of thing, and uh, it became a very interesting area to me. Uh, of course, this goes back some when uh, Hill Burton was in place and that sort of thing, but um, it ended up that um, most of the filtration applications were at at healthcare facilities, and so uh, that that brought me into play with that whole area of contaminant control and infectious diseases and so on. And so uh, from there, my experience uh, early on with 
Borg Warner got me involved in some specialized gas phase filtration, and I basically fell backwards into the industry in terms of clean air long before uh, IAQ became a recognized and designated area of interest and expertise. So clean air is basically how I ended up in indoor air quality and the whole relationship with products and um, and technology was fascinating to me. It was unique and um, intrigued me. So that's how I ended up in IAQ was not because of, of interest in specific IAQ issues. It was it was in the clean air aspect. Most of that early on was also either healthcare or industrial, and so there was a lot of industrial experience that that played in that as well. Is that also how you got involved with ASHRAE and and ended up becoming their international president? Well, yes, and that was a a long path. I've been uh, active in ASHRAE since the mid-60s, and obviously the technical society that deals with the indoor environment and the built environment was a place I wanted to be. I was unusual early on. I was basically just a salesman when I started out, the simple filter peddler. But the differentiation for uh, any one of us in that game was uh, our knowledge, our working knowledge. And I found that working in the technical committees at ASHRAE gave me a leg up. It gave me more knowledge. It gave me more application information. It gave me more understanding of the technologies. It gave me uh, helpmates that I could use uh, with clients and with customers. And so as a result, um, it it became my education. I learned my business uh, as a result of participation early on in ASHRAE and I did it from the technical side. That made me appreciate what was available from ASHRAE in terms of both a learning experience, but also in terms of the importance of standards and research and those aspects of our industry that normally you don't come in contact with it just strictly as a field salesman. And so, uh, in a sense, I grew into... ASHRAE from the ground up, from technical committees and then upward, uh, became um, very active at regional level, and uh, that invited me into the annual meetings, and uh, I sat with the board of directors and uh, ended up an appointed officer, uh, an officer in the, in the leadership of ASHRAE, died uh, just taking office, and I was appointed by the board of directors to fill his place as treasurer. Hmm. And that's how my career with the leadership of ASHRAE started, as a, an appointment by the board of directors. That's interesting. And I always recommend that people get involved with ASHRAE. Even if you're an affiliate member, the, the benefits are tremendous. I mean, you, you get the handbook every year. You get the monthly news uh, magazine. You get the weekly emails. Um, and if you want to be a participant on some of the technical committees, it's there for you. So it's a great organization. But anyway, I, I don't. I, I want to come back to ASHRAE and the 52 standard a little bit later. But before we do it, kind of like to set the table on some some issues with indoor air quality. Most of our listeners are pretty knowledgeable about indoor air quality issues. But before I get too in depth in that, I'd like to go back to the basics of 
you know, indoor air pollutants are commonly divided into particles, gases, and vapors. And I'm wondering if you could just differentiate between a gas and a vapor for listeners. It's sometimes, you know, people come up with ways of describing things on the radio that just blow my mind. So let's see what you've got, Barney. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the truth of the matter is you really only do have the two states. Um, You have solids and you have gases, both of which are carried in the airstream. And our exposure routes, of course, for um, our issues of IAQ, whether they be irritation or whether they be comfort or even worse, uh, uh, disease and and, uh, and even worse outcomes than that. But But the secret is that a vapor is really a misnomer. It, it implies the gas phase. When you see a vapor, you're really seeing an aerosol, meaning that you're right at phase change when you're jumping from a liquid into a vapor and, uh, and the reverse. And usually when the vapor occurs, it's, it's the reverse, meaning a gas phase is condensing out uh, and becoming a fog or visible, and it's actually an aerosol. And that aerosol, in many instances, is both liquid and solid. Uh, think in terms of fog uh, and that sort of thing. Now, fume uh, is is quite literally gaseous phase, and uh, so you really only t- truly have the two phases. Uh, particulate and gas phase when you're dealing with extraction and filtration. So it's, in a sense, a misnomer and a bit of a misuse um, of gas phase. Um, And possibly um, it's because of of the the precise point at which phase change occurs, and occasionally you get a visual fume that can occur, and that fume is visible. You, you just made me a happy man here, Barney. I'll tell you because I, you know, there are I, I see it in the ASHRAE handbooks and EPA, etc. You know, they they talk about the three different categories, and I, you made it a lot simpler for me to help explain to people. Look, you basically have two, but there's that phase in between, essentially. What are some of the most common gases that that are of concern with respect to indoor air quality? I know there's a lot, but let's let's go into um, Let's let's talk more about commercial today, commercial and and maybe hospital type uh, environments. Actually, when you consider the chemistry of air, obviously the constituents run into the potentially hundreds of thousands of compounds. Uh, as many combinations as there really exist can, in some form or fashion, and at some opportunity, be in the airstream in a, in, in that in that stew we call air. Of those chemicals, there are the ones that that are perhaps the more troublesome or the more common ones that we run into. You know, indoor air quality actually started because of one specific contaminant, and that was back in the early 70s, and that was formaldehyde. And formaldehyde remains with us as probably one of those pervasive and almost universal contaminants uh, in in the indoor commercial space. 
the whole family of aldehydes are troublesome, with some of them being far more irritating and far more annoying than, than simple formaldehyde. But for the layman, if you look at the, the chemical formula for uh, formaldehyde, it's HCHO. When, when you say that, it's hachu. <laughs> so it, it implies the irritation that you, you obtain from, from that compound, but it's indicative uh, of the kinds of things that can happen uh, as a human response to uh, airborne contaminants. So I would say formaldehyde is is one of those pervasive ones, and it's because it is so ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere, particularly in building more the more modern building components, manufactured lumber and timber, and any of the manufactured wood products we have have some form of formaldehyde in them. And then when you consider all the coatings and all of the dyes and those kinds of things, uh, it's virtually uh, everywhere. Beyond formaldehyde, there's a whole family of reactive chemicals that can cause problems, not necessarily as a contaminant in and of itself, but what it can cause in terms of interactions. And um, and that's uh, one of the more problematic ones is ozone. Uh, ozone of course is the is a simple molecule. It's the it's the unstable molecule of oxygen. But because it has uh, kind of an extra um, arm on it, uh, it has an extra valence, meaning it's very reactive. And it is a, a contaminant of concern in and of itself when you when you deal with human exposures, but also it will react with anything else, meaning any other airborne contaminant, any other surface that it may in fact impact on. So it's a it's a, a pretty nasty contaminant um, in and of itself, but the the real quandary when it becomes part of the indoor environment um, is that it, it, like formaldehyde, is virtually everywhere because it's in the ambient air, meaning it is an outside air contaminant that by virtue of infiltration and and, um, routine ventilation is introduced to the indoor area where it can unite with, react with, all sorts of other airborne contaminants, some of which are internally generated. So if you combine ozone and some of the indoor contaminants, including the formaldehyde family, you get some pretty nasty byproducts that can happen from those reactions. Also, the the intrinsic issue of some of those reactions is that if it, as it does go through that that reaction and and phase change, in many instances, you're not just creating new chemicals. You're creating superfine respirable particulate that can be ingested as well. So ozone, I think, is one of those troublesome ones. Um, anytime you have internal combustion and anytime you have those kinds of sources, you have the whole series of, of nitrogen oxides can also be A, reactive, and B, um, 
negative impact on, in terms of, of occupants. So you've got a plethora of, of chemicals that, that are problematic. The category that a lot of concern is focused on are the whole category of the ultra-volatile organic compounds, the VOCs. And, um, and those are troublesome, A, from, from a total burden, meaning what kind of total mass do you have of accumulated organics. But secondly, there are some trouble, troublesome singular ones that get into uh, the airstream, and some of them can be carcinogenic, some of them can be very, very irritating, some of them can be highly odorous and offensive. So it, it can build a, um, a an unpleasant uh, atmosphere just from discomfort. And, and the human response to um, bad odor is, is, a, is a trained and psychological response. So um, it's, it can be uh, almost an irrational response sometimes uh, that you don't quite understand why somebody's reacting so so fearfully to to an odor, but those responses are base base instinct responses, meaning flight or fight, and so it brings stress and it brings some irrational response. So, accumulative VOCs can can cause those kinds of of uh, discomfort and an occupant uh, reaction. So the whole whole series of chemicals are probably. Uh, the most problematic for us to handle in terms of indoor air quality. That was, I, I really appreciate the way you answered that. And, and let me go to one other uh, constituent of concern. Or some people feel it is, some don't. We all use it in one way or another. CO2. It's a common constituent of air, and there is some controversy about whether it is a pollutant. Do you have any... Uh, feelings on whether it's a pollutant or, you know, with potential health consequences, or is it just a good surrogate for determining if other possible uh, contaminants are building up within the indoor environment? Well, first, Joe, let me explain that truthfully, anything in excessive quantities can be, can be negative. Any constituent in inappropriate concentrations can be both a pollutant and uh, result in in negative health effects. Um, So even the most benign of compounds can bring about oftentimes negative results. Um, And so you really have to think through any contaminant, whether it's uh, carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. Um, here with carbon monoxide, you've got the same ions together uh, to create the molecule, and it's the same carbon and the same oxygen, and one's toxic in low concentrations, and the other is relatively benign. And just there's just one little oxygen difference between the two, and yet the reaction is totally different. And when you're into chemistry in, in air and dealing with, with chemicals, each one of them is entirely autonomous unto itself in terms of its, um, its nature, its properties, 
and in turn the reaction we might have to it. And it can be the same basic building blocks and yet bring about entirely different kinds of reactions. Now, back to your, your specific question. In my opinion, carbon dioxide is probably one of the more misunderstood of the, of the compounds that are constituents of, of common air. The real intent of including carbon dioxide in any of the original discussions of acceptable indoor air quality was from the standpoint of using it um, as, a, as a telltale, um, as a surrogate, because carbon dioxide in indoor space results strictly from occupants meaning it is the discharge from our life chemistry. Um, and so, therefore, it is a result of, of occupants and higher concentrations is indicative of more occupants or poorer ventilation and, uh, and dilution. And so, early in the development of Standard 62, which is the standard for ventilation for acceptable indoor air quality, Back in the 70s, when it was developed, and later in, in 1980, when it started really specifically talking about carbon dioxide as a surrogate for proper ventilation, it was as an indicator of the other things that occupants brought and other things that the building components brought to the indoor environment as opposed to being harmful in and of itself. Now, back to my original comment. Anything in high concentrations can have negative effects because it's dosage. It's how much for how long. And when you get exposed to too much for too long of virtually anything, whether whether it's carbon dioxide or your mother-in-law, it, it is a dosage issue. And so as you get con carbon dioxide up into um, 1,000, 1,500, you, the, science, uh, the science is is still not concrete. But there's hard science when you get close to 5,000. And above 5,000, you basically have impact on the respiration uh, rates, you have impact on concentration, you have impact on response timing and those kinds of things. So as you approach those higher thresholds, um, you do in fact get um, a trend line towards negative effects. But in and of itself, as we would see it in an indoor environment that is typical of a commercial building, um, CO2 up to 1,000 to 1,500 in that range is not a contaminant of concern. It is a, an issue of concern and can indicate an issue of concern at those higher levels if, in fact, there is restricted ventilation and it can be an indicator of those other problems that are, whether they be VOCs, whether they be inorganics, um, they could even indicate a, a particulate buildup because um, that too will build up if there's not proper control, if there's not proper dilution. So, you know, its use, both in 
standard 62 and in terms of, of diagnostics and building monitoring, um, it, it is, in my opinion, uh, a surrogate. It is not a contaminant of concern. Okay. That's, and I've got a text question I want to get to later from uh, guest six. I think that's Steve. But before halftime, I just wanted to set up the second half real quick, Barney. In your book, Managing IAQ, um, you discuss you know how we you know how we handle these indoor air quality issues. Of course, you've got you know source control of the of the of whatever the source is. We want to get rid of the source, um, and then you also use the word the term extraction as a I guess it's a different term than what I'm used to seeing. I usually see filtration. Can you tell listeners why you use the term extraction as opposed to filtration? Well, um, yes, and it, the simple answer is that it's just a broader category. Okay. Uh, as uh, as source control is a broad category because source control can be simply not introducing it into the building to begin with. It can be a technique of limiting certain types of products. It can mean reviewing MSDSs very carefully. It can mean using exhaust tactics um, where you would actually use spot exhaust to discharge the contaminant at its source rather than allowing it to to, uh, diffuse through the space. It's just a broader way of saying um, the tactic and then the specific technique that you use, uh, whether it be filtration, it could be gas phase sorption, it could be air washers, it could be um, any kind of thing that that would in fact react with or discharge or in some way control um, through an elimination process. And elimination is uh, is an, another just broad category uh, that that I use to describe it. So. Gotcha. I got you. Now, let me ask one real quick one before halftime. Is it accurate to say extraction or filtration of particles is typically easier than extraction or filtration of gases? That's a tough yes or no question. <laughs> okay. Then go ahead. Um, don't, don't make I it yes or no. I think the techniques for particulate filtration are better, better understood and have been in place longer and the task of uh, eliminating gases is probably a more complex and so therefore less understood um, area of technology. I don't know that it's a question of being easy or not. Uh, so it, it's, it is not a function necessarily of being easier or, or um, more um, equipment-friendly, uh, task-friendly, whatever. The, 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 the key to it is that, that the gas phase control is a product of the original statement that I made, that every contaminant of chemical nature behaves unto itself, whereas a particle is a particle. If it is aerodynamically one micron in size, it doesn't make any difference whether it's viable, whether it's whether it has a uh, alkaline nature, whether it uh, um, whether it's made up of um, a specific polymer, or whether it happens to be sand, it doesn't make any difference. It behaves the same when you're putting it through a a particulate arrestance filter. 
So aerodynamic size is the only criterion for that um, effectiveness. In the case of chemicals, there are probably a dozen different characteristics that each chemical can vary in, which makes the process of extraction a more complex situation in both efficiency and efficacy as far as uh, as total control. So it's a much different situation with chemical filtration as than it, than it is with particulate because of the nature of the chemical. Okay. And what I'd like to do is go into more detail on that in the second half of our interview. We're going to take a short break and thank our sponsors. We'll be back with Barney Burroughs, and, and we're going to talk a little more about extraction here in the second half of the show. And uh, and Cliff, I'm sorry I, I didn't even let you get a question in uh, edgewise there, but uh, I promise I'll come back to you for the second half. No problem. <laughs> thanks. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Yeah, actually there is too. Thank you. Um, Barney, can you explain to the listeners how gases and vapors in general uh, and uh, formaldehyde in particular would be extracted from indoor air? Do we have three days? Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm teasing a bit. The the quick answer in terms of extraction and equipment is the gas phase is basically handled through uh, adsorption and absorption. These are basically gas phase filtration equipment that uh, dependent upon the filtration media and dependent upon the configuration of the filtration device. can, in fact, control most of the airborne contaminants that we face in commercial buildings. Uh, not all, uh, but, but most. You cannot, unfortunately, select one filter as a do-all 
be all, see all, control all, um, in that certain of the sorption medias do, in fact, um, work better for certain compounds um, and don't work as well on other compounds. And so in many instances, for general commercial buildings, there are now available blends of uh, different media um, that would, in a sense, give you a more universal um, appeal that would cover the, 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 the plethora of volatile organics that we would see. And it's because those compounds have varying molecular weights, they have varying polarity, they have varying um, alkalinity, acidity, they, they have um, all sorts of differences in terms of their chemical properties, and they react differently to various uh, surface areas and various chemistries. And so, um, but broadly speaking, there are commercial products that would pretty well handle most of the airborne contaminants in commercial space, with one exception. And that notable exception is carbon monoxide uh, does not respond well to any of the known commercially available products at ambient temperatures. And so that's one con contaminant. If you have, it's unusual that you would have carbon monoxide in commercial space unless you've got open flames or some, some kind of um, activity like that that would yield carbon monoxide. But it is an outdoor air contaminant that is fairly prevalent. And if there is an introduction of that through the ventilation air, that becomes problematic in terms of the indoor space. Um, and the best tactic there in controlling that contaminant uh, is to traditionally, at least, uh, lower the amount of outdoor air coming in during that peak auto uh, exhaust time, the, um, the, the hours that are typical to uh, automobile act, act, uh, activity around the building. And so if you've got an active parking lot, for example, adjacent to an outdoor air entry, you better be shutting it down when the cars come in in the morning and leave in the evening because there's no... And to my knowledge, there's no really effective way of handling carbon monoxide at ambient temperatures. Now, I've got one short follow-up question, Borna. Can you tell the listeners a little bit of the history of uh, you know using adsorbent media in indoor spaces, you know, for controlling gases? Well, adsorbents and uh, and molecular sieves and absorbents uh, have all been used for over 50 years, generally in commercial buildings. But the history of them, of course, goes back to WW1. Uh, it's the original gas mask history that goes back uh, and uses specially treated uh, carbons uh, for, for that. Then in WW2, there was a great deal more research done and in terms of handling a nasty um, molecule that had the propensity of jumping states, um, the iodine, radioactive iodine, is a troublesome compound around, um, and it's created around nuclear facilities. And so part of the Manhattan Project uh, developed a specially treated carbon that was used to protect 
personnel around nuclear sites. And that's the first we saw chemisorbents, meaning reagents that were added to um, a sorbent, such as um, activated charcoal, that would control specific and single compounds. Now, in so doing that, and there have been secondary versions of that, for example, adding a caustic to carbon will make it very, very um, active against acid gases such as sulfur, sulfur dioxide. Um, but once you do that, you restrict its ability to basically do much for anything else, meaning you are now taking away the, the more the universality of, of adsorption or surface attraction, and, and, and you're restricting it to one reactive compound. Uh, the the culmination of that, which ended up being a, a patented product that I was involved with, used it used an active reagent, potassium permanganate, on active alumina, which they substituted alumina for for the carbon, um, and that uh, that does the same thing in terms of reacting a broad range of of reacting compounds. It doesn't work very well against non-reactive compounds. Um, but that was widely used. Um, in, in industry, so you had a, a, a lot of, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of commercialization of computers in, in heavy industry that were very vulnerable to acid gas environments around paper mills and around foundries and around uh, steel mills. Uh, so those computer rooms that controlled process had to be protected and so a lot of the early knowledge we have and the early application experience we have for gas phase sorption and gas phase control comes from protecting equipment and not people. Um, but they were very, very precise, well-engineered, and uh, highly monitored situations. So um, we're profiting from that early experience with uh, using sorbents. And there have been uh, other uh, specialty uh, uh, catalysts and um, and various uh, active surface materials that have been developed for specific compounds that I think will open up a, a brand new opportunity for us because there's I think our I think our real opportunity is in controlling um, gaseous materials and and we haven't even scratched the surface yet I think. Thank you. You know that's. I keep. I'm getting that impression more and more that you. That's like the main theme of. Um, you know, one of the main themes, I guess I should say that that you'd like to get out to listeners that there are opportunities here to take advantage of some of the science we have and and maybe to help people with issues that they thought there wasn't help for without using a tremendous amount of dilution by the way of ventilation. I mean, we have areas in the country where that ventilation may not be the best idea. Is that accurate to say that you feel like we're we're going to make a lot more progress in this area? Well, it would be my hope. The, what you're alluding to, of course, is the fact that the traditional method for controlling indoor contaminants at the time back into the 30s when some of the early ventilation codes were developed. It was called the body load. <laughs> it, was the, it was just literally occupancy odor from occupants. That did two things. It first kept us thinking in terms of ventilation as to odor control, 
strictly odor, that does two things. That's a, it keeps it, it, it keeps it as a comfort issue rather than any kind of irritation, any kind of health effects. So it keeps it comfort. And secondly, it keeps it uh, limited to the occupant as the primary source of indoor constituents and indoor contaminants. And that's what we've learned over the last 30 years is wrong because the, the primary burden and the baseline burden on the indoor environment comes from the building components. It started with insulation. I alluded to formaldehyde in the 70s. That was from from UFI, uh, urea formaldehyde insulation. And so it was a building component. The next big hassle was carpeting. Um, and it started the whole carpeting dialogue and, uh, and, and testing of various components. We mentioned formaldehyde. That's building components. That's chipboard. That's plywood. Um, and, and now, more recently, uh, all the modern manufactured wood is basically formaldehyde glue chemistry with wood splinters. Um, so there, there's just such a prevalence of the building component. And so our, our modern usage um, of ventilation um, is still dominated, unfortunately, with some of that early tradition of the occupant um, being the dominant source. And so our ventilation rates up until just the most recent versions of Standard 62 have been occupancy-derived. The more occupants, the more ventilation. Um, and that ventilation, as you alluded, in, here in the South, I'm in Atlanta, um, is, uh, is today it's very pleasant Tomorrow, it's going to be about 85 and a very, very high relative humidity. So you've got high humidity, high temperature, and there are, in the West Coast and in certain areas uh, around the country, very, very high levels of ambient pollution where we're in, in excess of, uh, of the ambient guidelines. And so we've got, we've got contaminated outdoor air, meaning it's not reliable as a, as a diluent. And secondly, it has a BTU cost that represents, in some cases, as much as 50% of the air conditioning cost is outdoor air treatment. And so it's an expensive process, and it's not reliable. So, yes, it's putting us back to, to using established techniques of extraction and, and intelligent uh, contaminant control within our space to do a better job of of managing our energy cost and doing a better job of improving our indoor air quality um, through tactics and techniques that are readily available. And it's my hope that we take more advantage of those rather than relying on more and more ventilation air with its cost and with its um, and its problems of, of in, internal uh, or inherent uh, contaminants. So I, we've got a long way to go there. Let me let me throw another variable into the into play here, and at the same time, I think I'll be covering a text question from a listener. When you use less ventilation, you're also going to see more buildup of CO2. Is there a good cost-effective method for extracting additional CO2 that's built up when we don't have as much ventilation? 
let me give you the quick answer to that, and then I want to elaborate. Okay. I'm not aware of any practical method for extracting CO2 from ambient space um, without um, excessive cost. The technology is available. It's done all the time uh, in rebreathing systems and in uh, deep sat diving and those specialized areas for treating um, uh, breathing airstreams. And uh, but it's done um, under very very restricted volume um, because you're basically dealing with small confined space and um, and you're dealing with fairly exotic. Um, chemistry and but there are there are techniques there are compounds there's apparatus for doing that it's not practical in the large scale when you're dealing with thousands of CFM on the other hand let me go back and say um, we've just completed and will be publishing this year uh, some research in which I went back on a number of buildings that used the indoor air quality procedure out of uh, standard 62. That is the the alternative that allows using gas phase and particulate filtration to replace ventilation, meaning lowering the outdoor air introduction into the space through and with the introduction of, of high efficiency filtration and air cleaning. And we evaluated a lot of installations where that was used um, that had been operative for years. And we documented um, not only the uh, energy effectiveness and the actual efficiency of the systems, we also monitored the, the resulting environments that uh, were in the space. And at no time were any of those buildings uh, in excess of of a thousand uh, parts per million CO2, so we didn't even experience the assumed elevation uh, that your question question implies um, that will occur when you uh, when you restrict uh, outside air. The, the The point is, in most of our buildings, uh, by virtue of the indoor air quality concerns, are fairly well ventilated to begin with. Many of them, in fact, are overventilated by virtue of their exhaust systems um, with, with, without even uh, introducing additional outside air. So we have not experienced buildups of, of CO2 in the kinds of commercial buildings that we looked at. Uh, we did not look at high concentration school settings, and I think that's probably where you would get excursions uh, into above a, a, a thousand, uh, but only in very, very concentrated areas. And, and in those instances, I believe that there are some combination systems where you would have sufficient ventilation, but not excessive, um, and you would control your contaminants with with uh, the combination of, of air cleaning and, and filtration. So the intelligent usage of both ventilation and air cleaning well, in, in, in fact, I believe they give you the, the, the best um, break-even and, and cost-effective usage of, of both techniques. I believe, technically, that a bubble building is possible. I believe, truthfully, that a building that is minimally um, pressurized just for infiltration control 
could probably operate with very, very little outdoor air and operate as a closed system if we really want to get to net zero energy usage. And the reason I believe that is true is that in a commercial building, you just don't have the concentration of people to have an excessive buildup of CO2. And it wouldn't, in my opinion, would not probably still be a contaminant of concern. That's interesting, Barney. I'm glad I asked it that way. Uh, Cliff, before I get too far along here, because I'll, I'll just keep asking questions. Anything you want to add? I'm good, Joe. Thanks. Okay, great. We've only got about six minutes. Barney, do you have to run right out of here at, at 1 o'clock, or can you stay an extra five minutes? Is that? Oh, I'd be happy to stay a few minutes. It would be great. We'd love to have you. And I, I want to bring our technical director on here because I know he'll have some comments. But before I get to that, let me ask you one more of my own, and then um, we'll we'll open it up to the roundup. Um, ASHRAE Standard 52 came out. There were... Um, a lot of manufacturers, when it first came out, I don't remember the the revision. What was it? 2005? It was issued in 99. But then uh, with the MERV rating, was that 99? Yes. Okay. When that first came out from 99 until, I'd say, 2002, 2003, I used to see MERV ratings on filters all over the place. And that went away. Uh, it, it's more and more difficult to find a MERV rating. Can you explain for us why that's occurring? If I if I'm accurate and fine in you know my observation, well let me let me make a comment about that first, and then and then I'll answer your question. The the original publication in '99, it took several years before the the actual labeling happened. So it was it was several years later when it really did occur. You and, and most all filters sold into the commercial market do have a MERV designation. Now you you just heard me say designation. I didn't say rating, because MERV is not a rating. Okay. And that is, I think, the the flaw of uh, of the entire question because, in truth, um, MERV itself is simply a a reference to a minimum efficiency level. And um, if, if anything, I'd have to say the one thing that will change and is changing right now um, is MERV is going away. And that's a good thing, in my opinion, because the data product of Standard 52, which is a test method, it's not a, it's not a rating method. Um, as a test method, it was to give you the minimum efficiency of a filter over its life cycle. It does that. But MERV is not that. That's the composite curve that comes out of the data. MERV is a contrived average of, of three size bands, uh, up to one, from one to three, and from three to ten uh, microns in size. And it's an averaging. So MERV has always been a contrived uh, classification, and it was useful at the time to simply get the mindset away from the old NBS um, ASHRAE 85, 95% designation, which were all fictional. And so it served its purpose. Uh, I think it's time for it to go, but the data product out of 52 is an extremely important designation because it tells you precisely what that filter will do against a specific particle size. And that for designers, and that for owners, 
uh, and folks that are concerned about health effects is an extremely important um, bit of data. And uh, and so I I think 52 uh, has done a tremendous job of bringing us forward uh, in terms of understanding. Now, also out of that test method came the duct that is now being used for other test methods, test 145, which is the gas phase test, is using the same test duct. It's using the same quality control methodology. So it was a tremendous advancement for our for our industry. But it is not a bad thing that MERV is going away. Um, it is actually a good thing because uh, what it means is that the real data product of 52.2 uh, is coming forward, and and MERV can be an effective tool also in the development of rating systems, which looks at filters from the standpoint of other factors than just efficiency, life cycle, capacity, pressure drop, and those kind of issues. I'm so glad I asked the question before you went. That's perfect. I really appreciate that, Barney. Let's go to our roundup. We'll bring in Dr. Weil and see if everybody has one last question. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's let's get Cliff. Do you have anything before we go to Doctor Wow? Um, I would like to just pose the one question, the one text question we had, Joe. If if Barney could quickly uh, comment on how they manage carbon dioxide in submarines. They lived with it. Wow. <laughs> they lived with it, and um, and in truth. Um, that's that's why they came to surface and vent. Now, activated charcoal was used at the time um, for general uh, comfort control, and treated carbon was used to protect them from the from the nuclear um, bank in in the case of the nukes. But uh, it was it was something that they just basically lived with and. Uh, which demonstrates that uh, carbon dioxide is not a contaminant of concern until you get into very, very high concentrations. They, they basically, it was something that was a given. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, wouldn't carbon remove oxygen as well? No. No. Okay. No. Okay. No, it has to do with polarity, and it has to do with the fact that, that it just equal, it reaches equilibrium, and so it does not impact... Because oxygen obviously is the dominant port of, of any airstream, and uh, you you get attraction that happens uh, due to polarity um, that uh, overrides um, those the, the other compounds. Now, carbon is not a universal; it doesn't attract everything. But uh, some of the heavier um, uh, volatile organics, it is very good on. Barney, I I had a question. I don't know if we're going to have time for it or not, but. Um... Let me do this. Let's. I'll email you on this one because it it gets rather technical. It's about removal of uh, particulate 
from uh, it looks like you're looking at how you how you determine how to remove lightweight VOCs, aldehydes, and, and semi-volatile organic compounds, and that would I'm assuming that would take quite a while to. to it, would, it would take a while, but uh, I'd be happy to respond to you. I do want to come back and make a comment about um, the reference to the. The, the 50 people on the committee at, at ASHRAE. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> there, 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 there is a tremendous weakness in that, and uh, of course he alluded to that, and that's that you've got 50 opinions. But the, the advantage of that is that's how you build consensus. Yeah. And the fact that uh, most of the standards that are derived out of that process um, naturally, because it's made up of 50 opinions, it's nowhere close to perfect because not everybody will agree with it. But the key to it is once you end up with it, it is something that everyone is satisfied that it is acceptable. Not perfect, acceptable. And so um, it's, it's, a, it's a slow process by virtue of that, but, it, but that's its strength. And when you walk away with it, it, it's something that everyone can support. And so the consensus process is one I think that is very, very valuable and very strong. Um, it is, uh, it is uh, exasperating because I was the chair of that 52 committee, and I can tell you it was, it was exasperating dealing with it. But um, I'm, I'm very proud of, of Standard 52 in terms of its result. MERV is not part of that. MERV was never part of the standard. It was a derivation of it, and so I think it served its purpose. But I want to commend the process by which those consensus standards are developed. Um, it is, it's slow and it's, and it's tedious, but, but you accomplish something at the end that everyone can live with, and that's the way you make progress. Well, I'm glad you clarified that on 52 as well. Um, but I, I really like to ask you about ozone real quick. Do you ever recommend ozone to assist with cleaning up a building? Well, the answer to that is a, a limited yes. In cleaning up a building, yes, it can have some effective results. Um, I'm thinking in terms of fire restoration and those kinds of things. I would never use ozone in an occupied building. Okay, okay. And, and is that's, it, that's you, the quick answer, because you, ozone is such a, um, a, a contaminant of concern for human occupants that ozone or any product that generates ozone, uh, in my opinion, um, is contributing to the problem and, uh, and a, a very, very risky process in terms of human exposure. But the use of ozone as an active ion for uh, controlling specific contaminants, for controlling odors, for controlling uh, reactive compounds. Um, now, it is, in my opinion, far more effective in, in, in liquids than it is um, in, in air, mm -hmm. simply because uh, in air you have to have such higher concentrations. And when you get into high concentrations, you risk the possibility of impairing surfaces. Um, you bleach color. You impact other uh, reactive surfaces that uh, 
could could cause problems to synthetics, to to synthetic rubbers and vinyls and things of that sort. So there's risk at high concentrations, but um, but there's no health risk because you're dealing with stuff um, in in an indoor environment that's occupied. Uh, I consider it a real hazard to introduce uh, any uh, ozone um, or any other chemical compound without a great deal of knowledge about what what its impact is from human occupancy. Well, we have run way over. I just want to be. I know that. Go, I, I apologize. <laughs> Sorry I, about that. <laughs> I really appreciate you being able to come join us and then stick with us. Is is there anything that you'd like to add before we go? Well, we've run out of time, but uh, I guess my parting shot is that that I'm I've been in indoor air quality long enough. Uh, I've been in it from the time that uh, before it was even labeled um, as air quality. And I've seen it mature to the point that it is no longer just an IAQ issue. I think we have basically to look at our buildings and our occupied space from a holistic standpoint, meaning um, if you do one thing to it, something else is going to happen. And so we really have to understand the impact um, of of, of our buildings and when we deal with specific contaminants and source control and ventilation and any of these kinds of things, we have to understand how it impacts something else uh, within the building. And we have, we have to deal with that from the standpoint of diagnostics. We have to deal with it from remediation. We have to deal with it from a design standpoint. We have to look at the building as a whole, not just the mechanical system, knowing full well that the outdoor air can impact our indoor environment. The siding can be in, impact the, uh, the outdoor environment. The envelope can impact the indoor environment. Um, I, the exhaust system impacts the indoor environment. All of these factors interrelate. And so I believe strongly that we have to be very careful about looking at a building or a, an indoor built environment from all aspects. Um, including the occupant and the behavior patterns that go on in terms of its use. And so my, my plea is that we go in with open eyes and, um, and look at the, the problem from a holistic standpoint or the opportunity from a holistic standpoint, knowing that, that what we do has, has ramifications uh, above and beyond. And so that's my parting shot. Well, I, I really appreciate having you here, Barney. All right, we've got to get you back. I didn't get to talk about three or four items, maybe more, that I'd love to have talked to you about. But uh, we'll, well, invite me back, and we'll see where we can work it out. I would love to do that. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to this week's guest, Barney Burrows, for joining us. Uh, get his book out there, Managing Indoor Air Quality, Burrows and Hanson. Great, great book. Uh, Kind of from the perspective of the um, manager of the building, you know, giving them some great information, but also a very valuable resource for indoor environmental quality professionals. And uh, we really appreciate him joining us here today. I want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff. Great job. Thanks again. Always so, fun, Joe. Always fun. I dominated the questions, but, uh, you know, I just felt like <laughs> I was enjoying it so much. But thanks again. Uh, I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, of course, for joining us. And, of course, at the controls, Roxy V, Val Bender. We'll sure. see everybody in two weeks. We're going to take the weekend off for Memorial Day next weekend, but we'll be back in two weeks for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Thank you.
This has been another IAQ Radio production. <laughs>